me a favor. Uh, I, w- I want you to do something just a little bit different for me. I want you to close your eyes just for a moment. And I want you to take a nice deep breath in. Just breathe in and then breathe out. And I'm going to ask you to um, imagine three different things for just a moment with your mind's eye. I want you first to imagine, imagine that you're standing and you've just thrown open a window. And as you've thrown open the window, there's this brisk, cool air that blows into your face and it just starts refreshing you. Just kind of imagine where that would be, where you'd be standing. Imagine that wind hitting your face. Imagine it waking you up. Now I want you to imagine a different picture. Imagine a bird circling in the sky high above, not even moving its wings, just soaring its power and control, just kind of soaring around, circling, and then imagine it just swooping down under control and what that would look like. Now I want you to imagine um, a fire in a backyard. Maybe it's a cool evening and the fire's going and you imagine the flames burning and the warmth radiating off of that fire and warming you. I want you to open your eyes now. These are the images that early Christians used to describe something that was strange, something that was nearly indescribable, but something that was real and something that was central to their lives. And that was the person of the Holy Spirit. They spoke of a powerful wind that was rushing into the house and entering into them. They they spoke of tongues of fire resting above people, transforming them, warming them. They picked up from this ancient creation story the image of a bird hovering over the the waters of of chaos to bring order and life to to bear. That's what they imagined. Um, there, There was something that they were experiencing. We have to understand that early Christians were experiencing something incredibly tangible, and yet it was almost impossible for them to put their experience into words. And so they used images, they used metaphors to try to make this unseen reality something that we could actually see, something that we could understand. So with a world that that we live in today that's so focused on what can be touched, everything has to be empirical, what, what can be observed and what can be categorized is the only thing that's real, I think these images that we just conjure up in our minds and, and the experiences of Christians that we read about, not just in the Bible, but throughout the centuries since the early church was formed, that they're difficult for us to understand sometimes. Because for most of us, for most of us, our response is to simply ignore or forget about this aspect of who God is. It's easier to think about God than think about him actually impacting us in a very personal way. And yet what we see over and over again is that God's animating spirit is what has given the followers of Jesus life and purpose and meaning from the very beginning. In fact, I would say this, that for many people, maybe, maybe you're just trying to find spiritual answers right now. For many people who are seeking, trying to find spiritual truth, it's this reality that, that I'm describing that you're actually anxious for. 
For, for some of you, the reason that you're exploring your faith, the reason that maybe you've come today or you've tuned in online is because there's this thing, there's this sense that you have that there has to be something more to faith than just a cerebral experience with, with an ancient book, that there must be something more. There has to be. And my hope is that when we're done this morning, when we're done today, you'll actually find what you're looking for in these questions. So if you have ever said, I want to know more, I want to experience more of God in my life tangibly, today may mark a pivotal moment in your life and your understanding of how God moves with you. Are you with me on this? So how? How do we experience this fresh wind? How do we experience the warmth of this fire? How do we experience the power and control of this hovering strong bird? How do we do this? Well, we've been looking at these conversations that Jesus has been having. We've been in a series called Humankind, and we're looking at these interactions that Jesus has, talking to different people along the way as he enters different cities and different towns. A lot of these circumstances or these interactions have been very random. They've been very happenstance. It's just whoever Jesus happens to to run into, and then we've looked at what took place in those immediate moments. But today we're going to look at a conversation that Jesus has that is very different, um, very different from those other interactions because it's incredibly intimate. Um, there's a special conversation that Jesus has. And, uh, and so I want to take time today to really dive into this and see something that Jesus said to his disciples in a really critical moment in their journey. Um, the setting is the Last Supper. And I want you to, if you have a Bible, you can start turning there. You can turn to John chapter 14. The setting is the Last Supper. Um, some of you are familiar with this story. You're familiar with what's going on here. Jesus has just brought the 12 together in what is known as the upper room, and they're going to celebrate the Jewish Passover together. This was a tradition that they would have done every year, but this is going to be the last Passover. This is the final meal that they're going to have before the crucifixion of Jesus. And what John gives us in his gospel is very distinct from the other three gospels as it relates to telling us the details of what took place in this upper room. The the other stories, they tend to tell us kind of the highlights. Here's what they did. Here's where they went. Here were some major things that were said. But what John does, basically what John does is he gets out the tape recorder and he hits record And he records the conversation that takes place over the course of that evening. And when he writes his gospel account over the next several chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, John records the conversation that was taking place that evening. And what we're going to look at is a particular portion of this because Jesus knows what's about to take place. Jesus knows what's coming in this moment. And so what Jesus does is he has the kind of conversation that you have with your friends, that you have with your loved ones when you know things are about to change dramatically. He starts to prepare them for his departure. He starts depositing promises in their hearts. I want to remind you of these things. I want you to know these things. And as he does this, he actually answers the questions that that we're asking in our own life. We are asking deep questions questions in our life. And Jesus begins to answer those questions. So I just want to pick up in the middle of this. John chapter 14, verse 16. This is what he says. And I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world and will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. 
In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is significant for us to understand. And I want to help you do that by understanding who this Helper is that Jesus is talking about. I want you to know who he is I want you to know how we encounter him, and I want you to understand how he impacts you. And I want to do this for for really important reasons. Um, I I mentioned just a moment ago that we all ask questions. Basically, we all ask three questions about our life. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how old you are, there are three basic questions that everybody in, in societies all over the world are asking today. Question number one is this, who am I? trying to find our identity. Who am I? Like, what, what am I doing here? Who am I? What's, what's my personality? How am I uniquely formed? Where do I find my value? Um, that's a, a significant part of what it means to be human today. The second question we wrestle with flows out of that, and that's how do I make a difference in the world? Not only who am I, but why am I? Why am I this person, and why have I been planted, planted in these circumstances, and why am I living this life, and am I supposed to make some sort of difference in this place? And then the third question we wrestle with is, do I belong? Where do I belong? Do I connect to anyone? Do I connect to anything? Those are the big questions we ask. And and what we discover is that what Jesus is telling his disciples right here, I believe, helps us answer the biggest questions that we're asking in today's day and age. So I want to just start with this first question of who is the Holy Spirit? And I think this is really important. I want you to notice that Jesus does not refer to the Spirit as an it, He uses a personal pronoun. Not not only that, when he describes what the Spirit does, what he does, he describes the things that people do, helping and teaching and reminding. And then in other places in the New Testament, we hear about the Spirit being described as having emotions, that he can be grieved, that he can love and extend love. So I just want to pause here and help us all understand that the Spirit of God is not an impersonal force because an impersonal force cannot do those things or feel those feelings. Only a person can. Only an entity can. So, So as mysterious as this may be and as complex as it may be for us to comprehend, the Spirit is personal. The Spirit that Jesus is referring to is a person and has an individual unique identity. But Jesus also says more than that, and I want you to see this. This is really interesting. If you go back, you notice that Jesus says this in verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. So so he's obviously assuming they've already been given one helper. Who do you think that helper is? It's himself, right? I'm going to give you another helper. Now, there are two Greek words that the New Testament, by the way, was written in the Greek language. There are two Greek words that can be translated as the word another in the English language. There's the word hetero, which means that there is another, but it is opposite and and different from the former. That's what the word hetero means. Then there is the word alos, and alos means that there's another, but it's the same as the former, that Whatever this other thing is, is very similar to it. The, the Greek New Testament uses the word alos. That's the, used word, the word used here, which means that Jesus is saying, is the one that's coming is just like me. 
The one that's coming is just like me, which also means that he's saying, in the same way that I am divine, that I am God, so is this spirit that's coming to be with you. Now, I could dive in right now into a conversation about the Trinity, um, but let me just simply say this. The Trinity, this idea of God being three persons in one, in my early walk with Jesus, I used to hurt my head thinking about this, right? I would think, how, I don't understand, you know, people would give me illustrations. I remember people would say, well, think about an egg. You have three parts of an egg. I'm like, I think God might be bigger than an egg. I don't know, you know, and so I would wrestle with this. But let me just say this, and and I don't mean to just move on so lightly, but today the reality of the Trinity is one of the most beautiful aspects of knowing God, and I'm okay with the mystery as I understand it. The point is that Jesus is, is saying this, the Spirit of God is personal, and the Spirit of God is divine. You've been given this Spirit, and you have to see this. He's in you. He's in you. He's in the middle of your life. And so what Jesus is revealing to us is this, and and this is a mouthful, but I think you need to understand every aspect of these words I'm about to share, is that the Holy Spirit is the personal, divine resident of the Christian heart. The Holy Spirit is the personal, divine resident of the Christian heart. So the Bible talks about us receiving the Spirit. Talk about the Spirit being present with us, being with us, being near to us, filling us, producing fruit out of us. And and when we are filled and when we become aware, there is this life and there is a joy and there is a power. There is wind in our sails and there there is fire that warms us. There is a bird that soars within us. And I want that for myself, but I also want that for you. So so maybe you say, okay, well then cut to the chase, Brad. Why are you talking about all this, right? Like, quit talking about who or what the Spirit is and tell us how to experience him. But here's the deal. You have to understand what or who the Spirit is in order for you to experience him rightly. And let me just explain this. Um, If you want to be filled with the Spirit and you think of the Spirit as an impersonal force, the Spirit is an it rather than a he, then you're going to seek the Spirit differently than you would if you understand the Spirit as a person. So, So if you try to be filled with an impersonal force, you're going to go about that in an impersonal, mechanical sort of way, right? For example, much of Eastern thought conceives of God as, as, a, as an impersonal force. And as a result of that thinking, much of Eastern thought pursues God in a very impersonal way, right? So you have rites and you have rituals. You have things that you do. You have temples and idols and, and activities that you engage in. And what you're trying to do is create an environment in which this impersonal force might enter into. And you do that mechanically. I jump through all of the mechanics. And I hope that if I do everything right, then this impersonal God will visit me in some capacity. Even Eastern meditation is very different from Christian meditation. Which, by the way, Christian medita- meditation is all throughout the Bible, but it's very different. In Eastern meditation, you empty your mind. You try to create space, hoping this impersonal force will visit you. In Christian meditation, you fill your mind with the truths of who God is. So 
If you think of the spirit as an it, you will approach the spirit's movement in your life very mechanically and very impersonally. So maybe you say, well, but I don't, I'm, I don't ascribe to Eastern thought, so that's not who I am. Maybe you say I'm a Christian, I don't do those things. But let me just say, Christians do this all the time. You think, well, if we, if we pray this way, if we pray this amount, if we use these kinds of words, if we refrain from certain activities, if we repent of certain things, it's like we start thinking, if I push all the right buttons and we sing the right song and pray the right prayers, and if the pastor says the right words, and then we pull all the levers, then maybe God will show up. Like suddenly we're going to get zapped with this impersonal force. He's going to hit us. But that is not the way it works. If the Holy Spirit is a person, and he is, you don't pursue him mechanically, you pursue him relationally. Do you see this? Are you with me? So this looks entirely different, and and I I don't want to be overly simplistic, but it really is simple. So let let me give you this example. If you want me to come over to your house for dinner, what do you do? Do you show me pictures of your house and how nice it is? Hey, look how nice my house is. Do you allow me to overhear you telling somebody else about the last meal you prepared for someone else and how delicious it was? And I just, I lean in, oh, that sounds good. And do, you, do, you, do you talk about how comfortable the furniture is? And do all these things just hoping that I'll show up for dinner? No, if you want me to come over for dinner, unless you're a crazy person, what do you do? You invite me, right? You just simply ask. If you want me to come over for dinner, you say, hey, come over for dinner. I'd like you to come over for dinner. Anything other than that is really weird. So don't do that if you ever do that sort of thing. Like, you're like, I don't know why he doesn't come over for dinner. Because you haven't asked. That's it, right? Guys, it's that simple with the Spirit of God. You just ask. You just ask. That's all we're doing is just asking and saying, would you come over for dinner? Would you come be a part of this? Would you make me aware of your presence? And then everything else follows along those same relational lines. To be filled with the Spirit is to be transformed by this consciousness of that person who now lives within the walls of your life. Now you understand the Spirit of God's living with me. That's like inviting a dignitary to your home, right? If you invite a dignitary to your home, you kind of clean up the house a little, right? Because they're coming over, right? And the kids, you don't really care so much about you know, certain things because the dignitary's in the house, because it's relational. The relationship, the awareness of the relationship is transforming. Just a knowing that the relationship is there, it changes things in you. So let me give you an example. Um, the screensaver on my phone or the background on my phone, you know what it is? It's... Um, it's a picture of my four kids, and, uh, and it's a picture from last Easter, I, and usually every year I kind of rotate the picture, but it's nine times out of ten, I got a picture of my kids on there, and, and here's why. Um, there, several years ago, I, I'll just quote Scott Van Pelt on ESPN, several years ago, uh, SVP, I love SVP, he did a little thing on his daughter's birthday a few years ago, and he told the story of the day his little girl was born, and at the end of the segment, He says, every day I wake up and I try to be the man that my little girl believes me to be. The day I heard that, I thought, boy, isn't that the truth? 
I, I hold a picture of my kids on my phone because every day I want to be the kind of dad my kids believe I am. I want to live into who they believe me to be, and my relationship with them changes who I am. And the same is true of the Spirit of God. Do you know who is living within the walls of your life? He's in your house. And when he is, there's this sense of, oh, man, that... That raises me up. I begin to live a little differently because I understand who is a part of my life now. Remember earlier I said one of the biggest questions that we ask and, and wrestle with is this question of who am I? Do you see how beautiful what we're reading right now, how beautifully it answers that question? You are a recipient of the Spirit of God. He dwells in your life. Talk about radically reshaping your identity, right? Talk about answering some questions about who we are. It's, it is pretty difficult to have low self-esteem or feel less than when you realize the spirit of God is inside of you, right? It's like, yeah, I don't really, really feel that good about myself. Not sure what my purpose is here. Other than the fact that the spirit of God dwells in me and I have the power and ability to discern things because of that. Like, that's incredible. There's so much there. And so much of what Jesus says about him is enlightening. Let me just show you this. Notice that he calls him the spirit of truth. He is the spirit of truth. So to be clear about this, and I think this is important that we understand how this gets walked out, he's not simply present in your life so that you get some spiritual goosebumps every now and then. Like, ooh, that was good worship, you know? Like, that's, you know, the spirit met us. How do you know? Well, because I got goosebumps. <laughs> well, he's actually in our life so we can discover He's in our life so we can discern. He's in our life so that we can walk with wisdom. He's in our life so that when we're sorting through what's true and untrue, we can actually see what is true. It's, it's sort of like being given a pair of glasses. I spent some money on these glasses. Not so that I would like look at them and say, wow, those are nice glasses. I spent money on glasses because when I put them on, I see things differently through these lenses. The Spirit of God is given to us, not so that we can look at the Spirit and say, isn't that neat, but so that we can wear the Spirit like glasses and see the world around us differently. The Spirit of truth allows us to see if we let him. We have the capacity to see what's real to understand what's true. In fact, I, I love this. Paul, who was one of the early Christian writers, he speaks of the spirit as a guarantee or like a down payment of what's to come. I just want to read this from Ephesians 1. He says in verse 13, he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, the idea of inheritance should not be understood exactly how it's understood in our culture. It's not simply um, an image taken from this human transaction where when someone dies, someone else gets their stuff. The Greek word that he uses here that's used for inheritance is the word erebon, which in the modern Greek world is the word for an engagement ring. It's, it's this sign in the present of a truth that's coming in the future, of a reality that's in the future. It's something that you experience now that's a taste of what's larger in the days ahead. In real estate, you might call this earnest money. In, uh, if you're buying a car, it might be your down payment. I don't know, but Paul is drawing on this major biblical theme that the spirit is the personal presence of the living God himself with us. That there is a reality out in the days ahead that every man and woman is going to come to realize. But in this moment, the spirit of God is with us like an engagement ring. 
saying, do you, do you, you know what's ahead, right? And so he's leading us, he's guiding us, he's warning us, he's rebuking us, he's celebrating our small steps towards that future inheritance. So what Paul is alluding to is this, is that when you and I get a glimpse of what's true in the future, it changes how we live today, right? When I see what's true in the future, it changes how I live today. And that's what the Spirit of God does. He he allows us to see what's true. And so the operational principles of our life begin to change. The, The functionality of how we move through our days and the way we make decisions, all of those things shift because of the Spirit. The wind of the Spirit enables us to now move in a new direction. That's what's being described. So the Spirit... The Spirit of God is given to us so that we can be, and again, this is one of those big questions we ask. How do I make a difference in the world? Well, the Spirit's given so that we can be, in a measure, in some sense, what Jesus was. Part of God's future, arriving in the present, a place where heaven and earth meet together, the means of God's kingdom moving forward. The Spirit is given so that we can share in the life and the continuing work of Jesus himself. That's why the Spirit is given. So so when we pursue the Spirit, what we're asking is that the truth, the truth of the future, would be revealed now. And sometimes that's for you. Sometimes that's just you knowing, oh, this is probably how I should move through this moment because I see what's true. And sometimes it's for others. And you realize, no, I need to speak this truth into or over someone else's life because of the implications. He's here for truth. And he's here to help. Notice this, that Jesus calls him the helper. Now, depending on what Bible you open up to, this is always fun. I think if you open up five different translations, there are five different words that are used to describe him. There's helper, advocate, comforter, counselor. Uh, There's all these different words. And let me just say, whenever you see discrepancies in the Bible like this and you go, how come this Bible uses this word and this English translation uses that word? Usually what it means is that the translators in their offices, while they were translating, at that moment, they looked like this. Like scratching their heads going... Because there are Greek words that are too deep. There are too many layers or nuances and for them to be translated into one single English word. And so this idea of helper is one of those words. This Greek word is actually taken from two words, the word para and the word kaleo, which means really two things. Um, the, the paraclete is what is in Greek, the helper, the, the advocate, the comforter. The first part of this means there's a very deep side to this. Just using the word para, it means to come alongside of. It it means not in front of, it means not behind, but it means like walking with arm in arm. And so this helper is described as being intensely personal. He is with you. He is alongside of you. This person that is coming that Jesus described is for you and not against you. He is with you and not distant from you. They are alongside of you. If you've ever walked through or navigated something really complicated or dark and you felt alone and then you had a friend who just came and sat with you, didn't even speak a word, you've experienced that comfort of someone being there. That's a glimpse of what Jesus is talking about here. He's with you. He's got your back. That's what he's telling us. But this word also carries an additional nuance. The word kaleo means to argue or advocate. So um, you know in movies when someone high-powered 
does something wrong and they get hauled off to jail and they say, get me my attorney. And then it flashes to the attorney and there's this like high powered, very intimidating person that shows up in the room. Um, I hope if I ever get hauled off to jail, I can do that. I don't know if I, hopefully I don't ever get hauled off to jail, but (laughs) if it ever happens, I want to say, get me my attorney, you know, and then there's this really influential attorney that comes in. but, But that's kind of the picture that's being painted here. When you put these words together, you realize there are some implications of this. There is this one who is alongside of you, and he's there to advocate for you. He's there to defend you. He's there to, he's there to give you maybe resources that you don't have in yourself. That's the picture that's being painted. But let me ask you, because there are implications of this. When do you need help? When you're in trouble, right? When do you need an advocate? When you landed yourself in jail, right? When do you need a comforter? When you're uncomfortable is when you need a comforter. So, so what I wonder, and as I was kind of wrestling with this text over the last couple of weeks, what I wonder is this. I wonder if one of the reasons we don't experience the Spirit is because we're too comfortable. Like we live in a comfort culture, right? Everything, everyone is just supposed to be comfortable. Cars and chairs and couches and beds and homes. Like the main value we have is I just want life to be comfortable. Like don't rock the boat. Don't make me feel pain. That's so important. So we're hardwired or trained in our culture that life is supposed to be comfortable. And so we make choices and decisions based on, well, what's the most comfortable thing to do? What's the easiest thing to do? We make choices of of who to talk to or when to step up or, or where to go to school or what job to take or, or where to stay, where to live. We make all those things based on what will be comfortable. And what, what's funny about that from a Christian perspective is I never heard Jesus actually say that. I never heard him say that. I don't read anywhere to Jesus looking at his followers and saying, guys, listen, I just want you to be comfortable. Never heard his disciples. They never wrote about it in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul never wrote a letter to, to the couch living comfortable people in this particular city. That's not what he did. What we have is really radically different imagery. We hear about leaving homes and leaving families. We talk about taking up crosses and, and bearing burdens. And I hear about suffering for the sake of Christ. I hear about courage. I hear about adventure. I hear about people stepping out, getting out of the boat. Peter, getting out of the boat. Jesus didn't say, hey, Peter, here's a paddleboard to get over here to me. He said, no, get out of the boat and walk to me. Get uncomfortable, right? And so Jesus tells his disciples and he tells us, I'm sending one to be alongside of you, not because you're going to live an easy life, but because you're going to live an adventurous life. You're going to live an adventure. You're going to live an adventure. Jesus says, I am going to send you one that in that adventure will give you power and will give you peace. And you are going to live with a deep sense of what is truly, truly meaningful and what's going on. And you're going to walk through things you never thought you could walk through with strength. And you'll never be alone. You will never be alone. I thought about this, and and I'm working with this on myself, by the way. What, if, what would happen if instead of me inviting the Spirit to come with me, what if I started following the Spirit, right? What if, what if instead of saying, oh, God, come bless this thing, or God, come be a part of whatever it is I'm doing, what if we actually stopped and said, what are you doing, and where do you want me to go? Maybe that's the missing component in our lives. Maybe that's why we live lackluster lives, Remember, we're asking, what am I doing here? How do I make a difference in the world? And I think the answer is pretty clear. 
Ask that guy sitting next to you, the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you the way. And I truly believe it's that simple. It really isn't complicated. And over the last few weeks, um, Alex, we, and I, we were at a conference together a few weeks ago, and I found this to be just a really powerful moment where we stood with a group of people and we held out our hands and we just simply said three words. We said, come, Holy Spirit. Over the past few weeks, I've just been finding myself praying that more and more, just saying, that's right, you're here. You're, you have taken up residence within the walls of my house. So would you allow me to see you, know you, hear you, know that you're here. So I just want to invite you right now into this moment to simply pray those three words with me. So would you bow your heads and let's just take a moment to pray. And let me say this, let me just preface with this. There may be a really specific thing that you're walking through or there might be something specific that you need an answer to or it could just be in general that you just want to know more of God experientially, whatever the case is, just identify that. Just say, specifically here. And then would you just simply quietly where you are, even with just a whisper or silently, would you just say, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Jesus, we sang this song earlier to you and we say it again, we love you. We need you. And we are thankful for the promise of never being alone and always having another just like you with us. In your name, amen. Amen. Would you guys stand with me this morning? As you're standing, let me just remind you of this. If there's ever a time on a Sunday when you're here hanging out and you're like, I need to talk to somebody like, I don't like something Brad said or, or, uh, or, or maybe, maybe it's like, hey, I just need to like pray with somebody. There's some stuff that's stirring up in my heart. Or maybe you want to say, I want to learn how to follow Jesus and say yes to him. We have elders in the room that wear lanyards. There are different places around. You can grab them in the lobby. You can grab them in here. They're always hanging around. If you just want to sit tight for a minute so that they can see you, they'll probably come find you. Um, but I just want to let you know about that before I offer the benediction today. So if you're willing, uh, hold out your hands to receive this and I'll offer this to you. May you be men and women who live adventurously, not comfortably. And may you constantly utter the words, come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 We love you guys so much. Thanks for being here today.